You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast this week. I'm your host, Matt Dye, and I've got a returning, actually, you're not a guest, you're a returning host. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. just foolish of me to even say, <laughs> try and say. We've got Frank Longcarriage on the podcast with us. Um, you guys have been head down, working hard, and yep. getting out there on the landscape, doing a bunch of different work. And, and summertime, I always feel like it often can be thought of as like this lull for, for habitat managers, people working the land, and there's, there's mm-hmm. the heat, uh, just humidity. Oh, yeah. Eh, yeah. It just gets nasty. There's bugs, there's spider webs, yep. just this and that. But it's yep. a great time for a lot of, um, I would say, reflection if you're not the one still eager enough to get out there and, and go do the work. But yeah, yeah. before we do jump into the podcast, I'll just hand things right over to our host, Frank Longcarriage. We need to do a quick shout out to um, Vortex Optics. If you guys have not checked out their line, um, we're running the red dot scopes this year. I'm sitting up in the office and I'm looking over what will be a potential food plot with binos in hand and it's getting dark out and it, um, unfortunately I'm not seeing anything, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm having fun at least taking a chance and, and trying to see if I can see ears and tails flick out there in the, in the pasture. So anyhow, hope you guys check out vortex optics, um, go to their online store or check them out there on social media and they also have a really nice podcast in vortex wear so if you guys are into apparel lines use the code legacy 20 at checkout all righty frank so what what's happening in your world what what's on your brain well yeah thanks um so um appreciate you um, having, having me on and, and anytime Kyle and I can get a chance to, to, uh, visit with you guys and, and just talk wildlife and wildlife management and wildlife issues, whatever it could be. I mean, we could go for hours doing this stuff and <laughs> we relish it and we, we love the opportunity to do this stuff. Um, you know, last night it was, it was fun. We, um, I got an invitation from a guy that I'd helped trap some beavers uh-huh. on his, he's got a probably a nine to 10 acre pond and nice. uh, it's a beautiful piece of ground. And uh, he had some beaver issues and he asked me to come out and help him. So I, I showed him the ropes and got him started on trapping beavers. And he was kind enough to to invite us out to fish. So I took my, my son, my 16 year old son out last yeah. night and one of his friends and so it's kind of the full moon, and so the the bluegill were on the beds, and we had a wonderful time catching bluegill. Uh, we end up keeping, well, we end up keeping enough for a pretty good fish fry. Oh, sweet! So, um, yeah, so summertime is is a great time for that kind of stuff. But you know, there there's you can have the fun of, of doing and take you know the rewards of of hard work. You know, like like 
harvesting fish and, and yeah. you know, that's a lot of fun, but, but there's always, you know, there's work to be done on the, on the wildlife management standpoint, or if you've got your work done, there's things to be looking for and plans to be made for the upcoming fall and winter. And, um, you know, we're, we're thinking about right now. And, and one of the things that I'm really thinking about now, especially the last couple of weeks has been the heat. I mean, we've had, we've had pretty good heat here in, in Southern Missouri as, as can be expected in, in June and July, but I'm trying to, but I'm thinking about, man, have I done everything that I can to prepare the wildlife species to be able to deal with that heat, whether that's providing thermal cover for, um, for quail or quality, cool bedding areas for deer. I mean, there's all kinds of things to think about. And you worry about that now. And, um, so we can, we can get into that and talking, talking about what these particular species need for that type of stuff and, and really talk about what's going on in the summertime, because, you know, we tend to think of wildlife management a lot when we're, when we're, hunting in the fall or in the winter when we're doing habitat work or when we're turkey hunting in the spring. But summer is kind of time we maybe take a minute to, to think about things. But but really, there's a lot that, I mean, the wildlife are living out there 365. And so we need to be absolutely providing for everything that they need for every day of the year. So that, that's a, a wonderful couple points there, Frank, that, that you brought up. I, I think that it's so misunderstood because it's just it's almost glassed over from many hunters I wouldn't say necessarily land managers um, but the very hunting minded folks who are doing habitat work many of the the situations in which you're manipulating the landscape are are really for the fall and early winter periods Mm -hmm. that a lot there's just so much geared to that and and it makes sense, right? I mean, yep. w- when we're out there working, we want to be able to reap the rewards and improve, uh, whether it's the efficiency or the amount of game that we're seeing or the opportunities that we have to harvest whatever you're classifying as a trophy. And and so, yeah, you you naturally gear habitat management into fall-minded, uh, whether it's travel patterns, just usage of, of hard mass trees to dense areas but there's so much more to land management that that we do need to talk about and and Mm -hmm. you're bringing up a a great time frame to cover because well we talked about it i think two maybe two weeks ago now on the podcast is uh stress periods and and Mm -hmm. unknown stress periods to um various game animals and i think we can't even begin to start understanding what those stress periods are and how they relate to summer when we first need to know what are the wildlife species even doing. When I say wildlife species, I think it's easiest, let's say, if we break down quail, turkey, and deer. But like yeah. on a landscape, what are they doing? Because I guess I, I brought it up when we when we were talking about vortex, but I I, I see the occasional deer on this property right now, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. set up. It's, it's when I'm looking at, it, of course I'm looking at saying, man, I'm surprised I'm even seeing them. Like, even yeah. though there's deer, of course, in the neighborhood, you know, you're going to see a few here and there, but it's to me, it's like what, knowing what deer, deer want right now, I'm shocked that they're here at the frequency at that they are, even though it's not a high frequency because what they sh- what they're looking for I don't really see on my place and it's like mm-hmm. why are they here um and, and we'll get in we'll get into I guess what I'm seeing here you know in, in the next next few minutes but uh, the the minds the mind space I guess most people really wants to click forward into early September or late August when you're seeing deer. And, yep. and big bean fields, and, and, you know, you're seeing this, like, massive antler growth that happened throughout the summer, and you see these just big changes. And I think that the the mind is, is so wrapped up in either antlers or seeing this amazing amount of growth through antler development that you forget about what are the stressors. Yeah, right. Because, it, yeah. I mean, we're, we... Spring and fall, temp just let's just go temporal, right? Temperature yeah. wise, 
they're they're easy. Yep. But but winter, sure, there's some extremes. So if we go to the other side of the spectrum, we're looking at summer. So of course we're going to experience extreme temperatures um, throughout many different years. So you know, let, let's start breaking that down, Frank, from from your perspective. Um, starting with with quail, like what are they? What are they even doing right now on the landscape and what kind of stuff would you find them in if it was available on the lands- landscape right. and that's a whole other factor i think that well uh, there's a that's a good that that's a good point and that is and that goes to your ability to even attract and hold quail throughout the landscape that you're managing if mm-hmm. you don't have mm-hmm. quality summering habitat or summer cover they just simply will be there. They'll be at the margins or at the fringes or the places where you've provided that. But if you're looking to provide your and have quail throughout your property or, or throughout whatever area you're managing, it absolutely have to have summer cover there or they, or they absolutely won't be there. So I'm, I'm thinking about quail in terms of, of a couple of different cohorts right now. There's, there's the cohort of hens that have hatched chicks. So and break, our research, break down real quick what a cohort is for people. Yeah. Listening. So so basically, a co- cohort is a group. It's a group of of individuals that are have the same behavior patterns. So there's this cohort of of females out there that have that have hatched chicks. So across the range of quail, for the most part, what we have found, at least in our Missouri quail study. Is there is there is a peak of hatching during the last couple of weeks of June into about the first week of July. That's when you start to see anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of all the quail that are going to be hatched on the landscape are going to be hatched during this time. So in South Texas and in, in South Florida, maybe a little earlier, you'd get north up in northern Iowa it may be a little bit later, but for the most of the country, I mean, we're in prime time. There are nests hatching every day. Mm-hmm. And so those hens have a, have a unique, um, need a unique set of habitat requirements. Well, they have a unique set of habitat requirements. These broods need overhead cover. They need, they need forbs. They need legumes that provide overhead cover but plenty of bare ground for them to run around because they're very small. They have short legs. They can't thermoregulate, so they need areas that are fairly dry, fairly open, and they can move around and that are full of insects because they absolutely only feed on insects for about the first two weeks of their life and pretty much feed on insects throughout the summer to the exclusion of most other things. And then when, when the hard seeds start to come in late summer, early fall they start to shift to seeds but man insects if they can find them they're they're going to be gorging on them so those hens with those broods are looking for cool shady areas with lots of forbs lots of legumes fairly sparse with lots of insects there's also these hens that are still sitting on nests or that are looking for nest sites either their first nest failed so it was depredated by by whatever numerous, you know, species that depredate quail eggs or quail nests, or in some cases, their nutritional requirements are just now being met. So places that have pretty sparse food resources, their re- nutritional requirements are just now such that they can even have a first nest. Mm. And so those hens are looking for nest sites. So when nest sites are different than four producing sites, uh, or excuse me, um, brood rearing areas. Nest sites, we're looking more some grasses that have some of last year's growth in it, clump grasses like little blue stem or broom sedge or things like that. And so those hens are spending most of their day on a nest or they go and lay an egg and then they they retreat to cooler areas during the day to find to find food. And they are using a lot of thermal cover in terms of forbs, so or excuse me, in terms of shrubs. So shady plum thickets, dogwood thickets, blackberry areas, areas that provide some shade and an ability to get away from, from some hot summer temperatures. So I did a study back a few years ago in Kansas, and we've done some work on it in Missouri. 
where we were putting temperature probes out in an open area, such as a forb area or, or a nesting site, and then putting temperature probes in areas of shrubs, like a dogwood thicket or a plum mm-hmm. thicket. And we were seeing about a 20 to 30 degree difference in temperature. Wow. And that is a, that is, that is a, that is important. I mean, that's critically important for these broods, for these hens that are laying eggs, but aren't necessarily sitting to retreat to those areas during the hottest part of the day to get away from the sun, to get away from that exposure, to cool off a little bit and prepare for an evening feeding run. So what I'm thinking about what I, what I would consider ideal summer habitat for quail. I want these areas that have some sparse native grasses for, for the birds to, to nest in, but I want areas with lots of forbs and legumes for broods, but there must be quality shrubby cover scattered throughout that. And it doesn't have to be big and it probably shouldn't be big mm-hmm. in terms of spatial scale. So quail can use, so if you're looking at a landscape, Anywhere from 5 to 25% of the landscape should be in some sort of shrubs. So it doesn't have to be a major part of the landscape. And we're looking at things, um, shrub thickets about the size of a truck hood or, or the bed of a truck. Um, you certainly don't need, you know, huge shrub thickets, and those can be detrimental. You need some, some smaller ones well scattered. But this is really what I'm looking for. They This, this idea of... of Thermal protection and thermal cover during summer has been shown to be critically important to Bob White through a lot of different research studies. And in fact, out west, conditions can get so hot that um, if if hens, when I'm talking out west, I'm talking west Texas and mm-hmm. west Kansas and west Oklahoma, if hens don't have thermal cover to, to get cooled off or, or to get some, um, some, some relief from the sun, then they're just physiologically not able to nest and then so your you know your your quail or the nests that are laid can just get absolutely too hot and the nest and the eggs just simply don't hatch so having some quality thermal cover is super critical and um it's it that stuff that has to be done and thought about in the winter and in the fall and in the early spring when you can prepare that stuff if you're trying to prepare it now it's pretty hard to do unless you're cutting some big trees down and dragging them out in your fields. And, but that's, that's, that's asking for trouble this time of year when it's so hot. That, that is. And then two, what, what those areas, I guess, as a shrub colony are naturally um, affording is, is essentially close to bare ground underneath of them. If you're dragging a treetop out now, you're pulling it across, you know, open fields. They don't have that bare ground. So it's not nearly as usable. And then if it's a treetop, you don't ha- you have full leaf coverage yep. and you don't get a breeze blowing through there. And so yeah. you, you brought up uh, several things. I was just like, boom, 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 massive yeah. points that to hit on and, and get people like, man, these are the things that you should be considering and thinking about um, when, when you're out there. Uh, and, and you talked about the extremes, but it still plays into this is the t- additional type of stress that often just missed is you know if 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 a hen does not have the ability to get out of the shade reproduction is just it's not going to happen for her like she's not in a physical condition to be able to have that fitness at that point in time to be able to produce eggs on the daily until she fills a clutch that's absolutely right and so you know we we talk about these wildlife species that are that are really highly productive, like mm-hmm. wild turkeys can be, mm-hmm. and certainly quail and most game birds. And I mean, they're one of one of their biggest um, priorities in life. Well, it's just, one is to stay alive, but two is to reproduce. Yeah. But the number one factor is to stay alive. So if conditions are not right, <clears throat> or if conditions are so hard that they'll pull resources that they would put towards reproduction to staying alive. So they'll sacrifice, you know, the next generation in order for themselves to stay alive. So when I talked about the food shortage, we saw this in Missouri and on some of our study sites, study sites that had sort of fairly poor late winter, early spring, and then into summer food sources, those hens they delayed their nesting sometimes three weeks 
beyond what hens that had better, you know, better resources did. Mm. And then so we all know that it, that as you get later in the summer, you get more predators on the landscape, whether it's more snakes, more raccoons that have been hat or been born that, that summer, more skunks that have been born that spring. Ranker Those grass. critters are out on the land. Yeah. Those critters are out on the landscape. So the point is that that nests that are later on into the summer tend to have a higher failure rate. Mm-hmm. So what you want is most of your nests early in the summer and most of those chicks hatched early. But if your hens are physiologically not able to nest because of poor resources, because of stressors from food or stressors because of uh, intense heat and they don't have enough shade, they'll take those resources that they would put to nesting and either delay it for two or three weeks or until they, they get the right conditions, or they'll just punt and say, forget this, I'm just going to stay alive and maybe try my luck next year. So so having conditions where food resources are good, but also you're minimizing environmental stress, whatever those stressors may be, and heat is a big one, Um Eliminating those or, or reducing those environmental stressors are a big factor for reproduction and ensuring that you have the next generation of Bob Whites or wild turkeys or whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 you talked about um, a 20 to 30 degree temperature swing just in a cool shaded area opposed to full sun. I mean, you think of that, that's the difference between 70 and 80 degrees and 100 and and yeah. felt real temperature, yeah. Um, yeah. and that's a that's a massive difference when I think about just myself, which would I rather be in? Uh, well, I'm going to work a lot longer and harder in 75 degree temperatures than I am in 100 degree temperatures. I'm going to yeah. play out <laughs> and just a couple tanks of fuel running a chainsaw in 100 degrees, and then I'm toast. I'm done. Where in yeah. 75, I can work all day long. And yeah, it 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 is amazing, but you. You think about that consistency. I have an I have AC in my house. Mm-hmm. I can I can escape to that. Well, yeah, a right. quail can. Like if, if yeah. they don't have that option, they're exposed to that. And then there's and I say quail, but but think about you know relative turkeys as well. If you yeah. if you're out there and it's just completely sustained temperatures for that long, and we're not talking about just open fields but but other important factors too or or landscapes um that influence turkeys during the summer uh it just makes a big dang difference yeah you know you mentioned that one of the things that really has stood out to me is um these these savanna and open woodland restoration sites mm-hmm. uh compared to say a soybean food plot or uh, a Milo food potter or something like that. Now we'll have, I've seen wild turkeys brooding in each of those sites. I've flushed wild sure. turkey broods yep. in a soybean food plot. They're out there picking whatever insects they can find. I'll flush quail broods out of there, but I've also seen quail broods in savannah restorations, woodland restorations, turkey broods in there. And there's always seems to be a cool breeze blowing. So there's shade. Yeah, there's yeah. already shade. There's a cool breeze blowing through there because the herbaceous vegetation is not so thick and tall to block that breeze. Yep. And so so birds that are in there are finding good resources. They're minimizing that environmental stress versus birds that are out, you know, they're they're out in an open field. They're finding enough to get by, but there's some environmental stress that they are facing. They may have to be brooded by the hen. They may have to, you know, scurry to a shrub cover uh, at some point during the day. So they're they're subject to more movement. They're subject to to a lot of different to a lot of different stresses that that birds that are in a landscape that's fairly cool anyway, even if it's 100 degrees. If you're in a savanna restoration or an open woodland, you know, it's a much better place to be than out in an open food plot or out in an open field. And and so and the same thing goes with with white-tailed deer. I don't know how many deer I see in our savannah restoration sites in the summer, mm-hmm. just hanging out. They're finding plenty of forage, but it's also much cooler than being out in an open field. And they, they, plus it's much cooler because there's wind movement than being in a closed canopy forest for sure. Absolutely. So it's, it's, you're getting, you're getting a reduction in environmental stress from closed canopy forest 
and also those open fields from being in a savanna or or an open woodland restoration site. So, so those are some things to think about, you know, and another, again, we pound on it all the time, but another important justification for reducing your canopy coverage in your woodlands. You're, you're hundred percent dead, right. And, and I think a lot of times people often, um, man, they, they almost undervalue the savanna and just think, oh, it's just an aesthetic mass producing type unit with, yeah, there's some associated forbs underneath of it. Um, and they, and they forget about the, the aspect of thermal regulation and usage for the summer time frame. Uh, <clears throat> but it's just widely, widely used during that for exactly the picture that you painted. And that's what I love. I'm going to brag on you for a second, but I love about, um, your, your experience as a researcher, your experience as a biologist, your experience as a land manager, and as a hunter, Frank, you're, you're painting and describing habitat types um, and, and usage of those or lack of usage of those really well. And, and it's awesome to, to know, wait, when you're out there working with the landowner consulting that you are describing and painting this clear image of what is good, what is, what is not good maybe what time it's good for and how it can be improved Um, because the vegetation and I say it too much, but I'm going to say it again, the vegetation, the composition, the structure, it all matters. It's not just, well, here's what it is. This is what we're given. No, it is up to us to manage it and manipulate it and to create these types of, let's say, stress-free environments that do make a difference because this is, this is impacting, again, individual birds' fitness, but also the future production of said population in a given area. That's right. It's That's weighty. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a big thing, and and you know we we often think about the individual animal, but man, we need to be thinking about making conditions as good as possible for that animal to pass on its genes to the next generation. Whether it's providing proper resources from a food standpoint, or providing an area where their where the environment or excuse me environmental stressors are reduced and, and, and so that they are in physiologically better shape. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you mentioned about, about landowners and consultations, and that's one of the things that, that we spend so much time on with landowners throughout the day or throughout the evening or the next day or however long we've got them. And even in the, even in the plan that we provide is explaining the why Yes. Why are we doing something? And we will stand at a savanna, at a site where we say, hey, you need to reduce this to a 30 or 40 percent canopy cover. And then we won't just move on. We'll say, hey, this is why you need to do this. You're going to see an increase in food resources. You're going to see an increase or, or, or a better environmental condition and explain what that is. And that's that is that is that is so important when we're talking to these landowners and talking to folks is to give them the why, because Mm -hmm. I hate to be told to do something, you know, and not be told (laughs) why I'm doing it. Just do it. And don't worry about it. Trust me. Well, nobody likes that. So, and you're not going to work nearly as hard to accomplish that. If you don't know the why, if, if, if you're lost as to why you're even doing or why it, it has significance, because besides someone just said so, or I just yep. heard that you should do it, you're you're probably not going to implement it to the fullest degree, and then therefore not get the benefit of actually doing it. Just getting more frustrated with the lack of results when all you really needed was just to understand the why behind yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, and so. Yeah. You know, that's that's an important, important part. And, you know, as we think about environmental stressors, I, I hate to get away from the temperature stuff and because it is so such a big thing to be thinking about right now. But but one thing kind of really reminded me a couple of weeks ago, we were doing some food plot work and we went to check out um, one of one of the previous year's plot. And we found this huge 
turkey dust right in the middle of some bare ground. Mm-hmm. And and seeing turkey dust are not uncommon. Seeing quail dust are not uncommon. But it just it just drove home two things. One is that these animals are dealing with environmental stress from heat, from rain, from from all the 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 um, sources of of weather. But also they're dealing with parasites this time of year and increased bugs, increased mosquitoes, increased ticks, whatever it may be. And they're looking for places to reduce that parasite load or places that are more comfortable. And seeing that dust was like, duh, yeah, these turkeys are coming in here. One, because this is bare ground that we've provided for them through the food plot we weren't you know we had it was around the edge of the food plot where it was fairly sparse vegetation but there was some bare ground there so it reminded me one we need to be thinking about providing these areas of bare ground not only for broods but these are areas where adults dust and remove these ticks and remove these parasites and um, that's something we don't often think about is is um, how important having sites where, where these birds or deer or whatever we manage can since can reduce the parasite load that they have or or the insects around them because as we know if if these species are filled with parasites or filled with ticks when they can't get rid of them they're much more vulnerable to predation from hawks and owls from a quail and turkey standpoint and bobcats and coyotes and whatever it is. They're much less alert. They're worried. They're scratching a lot. You know, they're, they're doing all these things and it makes them more vulnerable. So mm-hmm. that's just another thing that we need to be thinking about this time of year is, is providing areas where turkeys can get away or quail or deer, or whatever we're talking about to get away from these insects and bugs. Cause we sure want to do it. Oh, you know, yeah. we, we don't, we don't want this and, and these animals have to deal with it have to deal with it every day. You know, I, and that, that brings up a, another good point from a, the whitetail side of things. Um, and, and I'll come right back to that, but something I didn't hit on earlier, you, when you were talking about the savanna and the woodland, um, th- there's a lot of people who think, well, that you know, there's still a lot of sunlight coming in there, guys, and, and they they would be absolutely right. But there's still a, the, the amount of shade that's necessary. And oh, what, yeah. what those areas don't have, though, and I find a lot of in other areas uh, or, or portions of unmanaged timber, um, they'll say, well, wow, look at all this shade. But they have such an incredible dense mid-story that there mm-hmm. is no breeze coming through. I was at That's a site right. in Virginia, and you know the, the stocking rate of um, the upper canopy, let's say, was like, wow, I really like this, but what I don't like is how dense the American holly and how dense the uh, American beech was in the understory or, or midstory. And it really decreased or devalued, even though there was sunlight getting to great mass-producing trees, there was not the usage or it was the decrease of, of usable space for lots of different critters during the summer. And yep. it was like, Wow, this this really could be better if the mid story is just reduced, and, and you can do that with a chainsaw. Yeah, but but well, don't think about just like, oh, well, I've got shade, I'm good. You really need the breeze to be able to just yeah. easily go through there. And and I was actually out cutting yesterday morning. It was seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning, and it was humid. But it mm-hmm. wasn't bad. Like, there was a breeze out in the field. I was like, oh, this, this won't be too bad. As soon as I got in the timber, done. Yeah. No breeze. Yeah. There were cedars around. There was a really dense mid-story. And I was cutting. And, I, I mean, I was sweating like crazy. And it's yeah. 8 o'clock in the morning. And as soon as I got done and drove back to the house, I got out. And I was like, well, what the heck? Like, it is so nice. There's a breeze blowing. Yeah. I cooled right off. And it just happened really within a matter of three or four minutes. It's like, I feel I feel 10 times better. And yep. it literally is the presence or absence of the the breeze blowing through. And well, that's right. You, you, that's right. You talked about, this is, I guess, going back to that point I was going to make about yeah. whitetails. Bringing the breeze back into the conversation, another aspect of of regulation when you're talking about um insects and and mites and everything 
when whitetails, they, they are always dealing with flies. And so mm-hmm. they need to be in an area that has a breeze that moves through at a pretty steep rate because there are a lot of the, the biting gnats and the biting flies, um, things that are on the wing and, um, as an insect. When there's a high wind, they're not around. When, right. when it's pretty stiff, they they it's it's not the right conditions for them to be able to fly. Yeah. So if you can match all of these th- factors into an, an actual um, environment or habitat type on a given property, you can accomplish so many different things at once. So you're, you're accomplishing huge reduction of stress um, for the factor of shade. Hopefully you'll have food available, but you have the breeze present that is reducing temperatures but also insect um stress on the on on the specific the individual animal itself as well and, and again it's it's easily overlooked yeah but it's well, something well, that, that matters yeah that's right and going back to that savannah you know discussion that we were having so that's that's one of the points i was i was attempting to make is is in these savannas with or even these open woodlands where you have that reduction of mid-story. There's, you know, in in, in this mid Midwest and the South, usually in the summer, there's generally some kind of south wind blowing, you know, by about, I don't know, by about one to two o'clock in the afternoon. It's generally fairly stiff. And um, those savanna areas really, with it, with it doesn't have a, a mid-story like you're talking about, really lets that that breeze through. Not only deer love it, but but you know, flies and, and mosquitoes bother quail, bother turkeys too. But it's funny you mention it because when you when you walk into so we we had a savanna unit that that we've been managing for for quite a while, and 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 we struggle with that thing because there is a there can be a, a pretty hard um, or there there can be a pretty thick sumac midstory in there uh, if we go you know more than three or four years without burning it. And so we're, you know, we work on it with with herbicide and with fire and some other things. But in those years, I've noticed when that sumac midstory is really thick, you get in there. Well, then you lose the breeze for one mm-hmm. thing. But also, and, and I've seen this so many times working out in the summer in closed canopy forest. If you're out in the field edge, you're okay. But as soon as you get in the woods, you start getting mosquitoes on you. Well, a couple of things. One that breeze has been killed because there is so much vegetation so much so many things to block the wind in those closed canopy forest or in a savanna that has a lot of mid-story but also it's a more moist environment the relative humidity increases because all of those leaves all of that green vegetation is transpiring you're getting yeah. water that, that it's letting off and so the relative humidity in there is much higher and that makes a huge difference. Once you get heat and humidity together, you know how harder, how much harder it is to work outside when the humidity is higher. Well, in those closed canopy woodlands and those savannas or open woodland sites that have a thick midstory, the relative humidity is much higher. Not only is that more uncomfortable, but that tends to draw more insects and more flies because it is a more moist environment and more mosquitoes. So, um, man. Those those are areas where, where wildlife find it very uncomfortable to be. But if that's all they have, if that's the choice, they, they have that or be out in an open field at two o'clock in the afternoon and they're going to choose the 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 closed canopy forest. It's still not going to be the most comfortable. They're probably going to be have their guard down, swatting flies or swatting mosquitoes, and then they're more susceptible to predation. So Definitely. those are the, the cool thing is, is. You know, God provided a mechanism for all these species to to escape these environmental stressors, and He provided a landscape that um, provided those mechanisms. You know, historically, mm-hmm. but as we've altered the landscape, we've removed those mechanisms for these animals to to reduce those stressors. So now it's up to us to get back and and provide those mechanisms again where those animals can be more comfortable no you're you're definitely right i'm gonna throw one caveat into that last situation that you talked about and it's it's a small one because i i i see it occasionally let's say and this is more from a deer standpoint than a than a 
turkey and a, and certainly a quail. But when you're when you're looking at like wetlands that are higher humidity, lots of green vegetation, um, potentially breeze, but sometimes it's not. If it's down like in a bowl, uh, you're not getting a good breeze down through there in the summer most times. But there is one situation where if there is wet, moist ground, deer will still bed in there just so they can put their bellies, their, their, where the thin, their hair is thinnest, they can put their bellies on cooler, wet ground, and that will yep. help cool them off. Yep, yep. Well, but, we saw that in a, in a um, consultation we had in Mississippi back a while ago. There was a, a beaver swamp area that's right. that, that was um, perfect summer yep. um, summer thermal cover for whitetails and, and the landowner was was you know talking about this area and asking what we should do and he said man you've got a you know tailor-made thermal protection or, or not thermal protection but that thermal refuge for whitetails right here mm-hmm. he noted yeah deer come up out of here all the time you know in the summertime so and, and um, a lot of that 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 same type vegetation um can be a forage value too you know yep. it, it's just this this trade-off, um, and, and then occasionally, if you do have running water um, that uh, that's flowing at a decent speed, there is that consistent breeze moving through. Um, it, it's really a more of a thermal action uh, of that water moving through. So you'll certainly see um, deer relate to that north slopage um, and, and a breeze r- running through. Man, it, it could be almost just downright consistent consistent daily that is where they're at in the summer time frame but yeah uh, uh, you know you're not going to find deer bedded there in the summer because it's it's a complete opposite i mean excuse me i said summer i meant winter time frame it's a complete opposite you know so so we bring all this up to to essentially make the point that if you don't have this or if you don't know that you have this on a property we know the the weight and the significance that it has but if you don't know that you have it or where it's at or how to identify it or how to create it, that's what we're here for. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and that's the beauty, I think, of of managing on a more community, natural mm-hmm. community standpoint and a more holistic standpoint where we're trying to get the landscape back to what it historically probably was because um, – and, and we do that in a lot of in a lot of instances because we're thinking of increased forage production because you know there's there's more forage for whitetails there's much better seed producing capacity for turkeys and and quail but we're also thinking of it from a reproductive standpoint we're providing better nesting cover fawning cover brood rearing habitat Mm -hmm. but the really cool thing is if we manage for these community types for those reasons food and 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 reproduction the cool thing is that that those are the same types of landscapes and same types of habitats that serve to reduce these environmental stressors that we've been talking about whether it's heat humidity or insects and parasites they all it all works beautifully together so for example we manage a savanna and it provides great you know fawning habitat or great forage habitat but it's a terrible place for insects no 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 that's not how it works right. you know it's a, it's great for all of these things that we're worried about so that's the real beauty of, of managing on a more community type approach is you're addressing everything because quite frankly these species adapted to that you know over a long period of time and so they know how to handle it absolutely and and that's where if you're if you're trying to manage in the plant community sense like you're talking about you're achieving diversity on a property and so you're maximizing if you have diversity on a property you're maximizing the usage usage or the usability of each acre so so you're increasing how much game can utilize the property at any given time of the year if yep. you're just shooting for diversity. And that's why it, it it's always been the go-to. It will be the go-to. It's the principle in which wildlife should be managed around. And therefore, if your goal for property management 
or for property usage is wildlife oriented, we're shooting for diversity because it covers the gamut. It's it's a, it's a built-in insurance policy to your property if you're shooting for and creating diversity I, I'm not worried about is the, is there the right habitat type covered for this extreme temperature or yep. this extreme high or this extreme low. Well, I know that originally when I created all this habitat or I manipulated, because I guess we didn't create it, God created it. But when we yep. manipulate it, we step in as a landowner and I, and I shoot for diversity and I accomplish it. I don't have anything to worry about. That's right. Because it's That's out right. there, it's there, and it's it's present, and and I'm not gonna like force deer to to walk and use this one thing at this time of the year. No, I'm just yeah. gonna I'm just gonna let them utilize it as they wish, how they wish. Um, but can I still set it up better for deer hunting? Absolutely. Can I set something up better for turkey hunting? Absolutely. Or quail oh, yeah. hunting. You can still accomplish all of this. But yeah. you, you first and foremost have to make sure that that they're there. And I yeah. think that when you that, that's that's a a common approach uh, to some other let's say approaches to land management. Uh, I'm being very vague there. Sorry, mm-hmm. but but the uh, maybe, maybe other people's approaches to land management. Is how can I get them here to kill them? And yeah, and right. first and foremost, we have to ask ourselves. How can I make sure I'm producing them? And yeah. then once I know that I'm producing them on my property, then I can say, let's set it up and, and, and reap the rewards of, of producing that animal. We can't just always expect that these animals are being produced or the habitat's greener on the other side of the property line because it's probably not. It's probably less desirable if you're Absolutely. doing some sort of t- some sort of management. You you can't expect your neighbor to always be there, being the area that's better brooding cover, or always being the better nesting cover, or fawning cover, or scape cover. That's not always going to be there. So first and foremost, we have to produce it. It's our responsibility, and then we manage. Well, we we do that by managing for diversity, and then going in. And, and setting it up to be able to reap those rewards. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great way to say it is, is, a, you know, as, as landscapes become more and more fragmented, um, even, even on some of the bigger properties that I work on, some of the, you know, I'm thinking about a property that I work on. That's about, it's a little over 4,000 acres mm-hmm. and um, it's a property that we, we manage hard for Bob White's. And, you know, we have quail, we have huntable numbers, but man, we're not getting the results that, that we want to get. And I look around at our neighbors. And so there is zero quail habitat for any appreciable distance around there. So we're, we're a a fairly large Island, a 4,000 acre Island in a pretty hostile habitat. And you would think, well, 4,000 acres shoot quail only need 40 acres, right? That's what grandpa told me. They can live (laughs) on 40 acres. Well, no, they they need a landscape where they can move back and forth and 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 interchange genes from one meta population to another and, and do all of these things. And and so your point is is well taken that that you can't rely on your neighbors to be providing these habitats because they they probably aren't. And that's one of the things that, that got us in trouble, I think, in, in the quail world. And I'll kind of you know, kind of talk about us and the quail world. And I talk about us because, you know, I, I do a, I, my history, my background has been in quail so much um, that, you know, we have tried to provide, okay, this is, this is winter cover over here. And then over here on this parcel, we're going to have nesting. And then over here on this parcel, we're going to have brood habitat. Man, it just didn't work. And where we were seeing things working or is in these diverse mm. landscapes, whether it was grasslands or you look in, in, you know, South Georgia and North Florida where they have these pine plantations, but they're diverse plantations that cover hundreds of thousands of acres in total. You look at Texas where it's just a single diverse landscape of habitat 
like, man, we should have been doing this all along because the quail are telling us where, where they're doing, where they're doing the best. But we tried so hard to force them into these uniformity these sites that we wanted them to be in, or we expected them or we thought they should mm-hmm. based on our notions of what we preferred or, or how we wanted to, to more efficiently and easily manage. And, and, and we didn't do a very good job. Now we're starting to turn the corner and, and, and doing, doing a better job at that. But man, you're right. We, we have to be thinking, I know we got from talking about environmental stressors to a more philosophical approach <laughs> to land management, oh, but well. that's okay because yeah. that's where that sort of conversation naturally leads mm-hmm. is all these conversations naturally lead to a more diverse landscape that's going to provide the needs of these species 24 hours, 365, not just in the fall when we hunt them, not just in the winter when we hunt them or in the spring when we're hunting turkeys, but you know, what's going on in the, in the world of whitetail right now is just as important as what's going on in the world of whitetail in October. And we have to be thinking about that. And also we have to be planning ahead because as I said earlier, if we're going to manage for thermal cover or reduction of environmental stressors for this time period, we need to start doing it. We needed to start doing it back last fall and through winter. Right. So, so the time to do that is is too late, but we can still plan ahead right now. This is the time to be pouring over maps, yes. looking at your topography on your property, getting out and, and scoping out the watch you've got on the landscape early in the morning or in the evening, taking a drive on your side by side, whatever it is, taking notes, making, taking pictures and planning ahead saying right now, I, the animals on my property need this. I don't obviously have this. How can I get it? And this is a perfect time to be doing that because your deficiencies will be showing up right now. Yeah. I mean, it's a great time frame to evaluate a, a property and and I don't know if there is I'm sure there probably is but we we as a company you, obviously you Frank Adam included are probably some of the most critical people of plant communities and properties but we have to be because we're setting up uh, it's our responsibility when we're on on site for uh, consultation with someone. It's our responsibility to to try and make that property the best that it can be. So we need to look at things critically and point out the deficiencies and say that's an issue or this isn't represented or we need to manipulate this site to offer X because I'm not seeing it anywhere else. And this is the easiest place to do it. And sp- spatially it makes sense because we have this other feature right over here so let's let's do that here and not there because we're going to get here faster and the other thing other habitat type other adjacent to it is operating like it should we just let's just manage it with prescribed fire and we're good but but we have to be critical of that and um you know i i I, I think there's 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 tasteful ways to do it um it's just through knowing Going back to what what you originally said early, earlier, there well, is why. You're right. You're right. And I'm I'm my own worst critic uh, of my management. When I when uh-huh. I go to a place that I've management, I come back with like feeling like, like my head low. Like man, why didn't I think of this? Or why haven't I done this? Why haven't I prepared that? Just trying to make it as good and as perfect as it can be, and then rationalizing thing. No, I, I can't. I mean, you know, I don't have enough time, resources or whatever to get it to that point yet. And because it's not there yet, I still, you know, I, I, I kick myself. But or another thing that I'll do is I've had Kyle come to my specific areas that I manage or the properties that I'm working on. And I'll say, Kyle, come here. Let's ride around with me. Give me some of your thoughts. Give me some of your ideas. And I've done the same thing for him. And man, that that is a that is a super good way to do it because you get a different perspective. You also get maybe feeling a little bit better about yourself because they're not as hard on you and they're thinking, man, you did a good job here. That looks really good there. So you get some confidence, but also it's another pair of eyes that that can miss something and invariably Kyle will point out something that I've missed and like, man, that, that's a great point. 
And these are a great time to be doing that right now when, when you're kind of at a lull of getting out and doing actual field work, unless you're doing some invasive species spot, spot treatment or, or, or some, some treating some fields, you know, with herbicide or whatever you're doing. These are times to be really having an, another critical eye out there, evaluating your, your, your summer conditions and taking notes about what needs to be, what needs to be improved. Yeah. I, I totally, and, and I think that's why all, always being open to having additional eyes come on a property is, is really good. And, you know, it t- kind of takes me back, um, honestly, to a consultation that you, me, and uh, Kyle were on down in Florida. We, we've yeah. done podcasts and stuff on it. You know, that that habitat on that property was being managed pretty intensely from from all um, angles, but there were the finer points that they wanted us to hit on. They knew that they were doing a, a pretty good job of of mm-hmm. things. Oh yeah. Um, they had plant communities that we wanted to see represented, but we we cranked up that dial from solid to like really good when they started mm-hmm. implementing this and. I've been getting some pictures, some fire, um, the the intensity and the intervals in which they're disturbing that place on um, has definitely increased, and and I'm I'm glad that they called us because although they could have sat back and said, well, yeah, we're one of the the better uh, um, you know farms around in our respective area, they said we're one of the better farms around, but I think there's more. Mm-hmm. I think that we can. I think that we can do. I think we can do better. And so yeah. they're open to just having that idea and saying, although this place is good, I wonder if I wonder if we can make it just that much better. Because I'd like to see that. I'd like to be in, be able to enjoy that property if it was that much better. Yeah, um, that's right. And, and it's right. it's headed. It was already going to be headed in a good direction whether they called us or not and we had gone down there but i'm confident that them putting the plan into action it's it's cranked up the dial to um to 10 and really um taking that place and doing some fantastic um habitat management techniques on on it so we see good properties all the time we see properties that are just starting out from from habitat manipulation standpoint uh each one of them need attention and direction but it it you have to go in there with that critical eye so you bringing um kyle um i'm sure he's going to be just as blunt and give it to you straight as possible i mean he's, oh, yeah. he's a great yeah. one to just oh, yeah. uh yeah. you know oh, yeah lower your self-esteem at the same time as being critical of the habitat. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, you, you never know. You always know where you stand. Yeah. <laughs> you never have to. You why never, why and, would and, you do that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. Because, well, because it's, I begrudgingly admit he's a darn good wildlife manager. And he is. so he is. I, uh, I have learned a lot. And, and that's one of the things that I think that is cool about what, what we bring to the table as, as a group of four of us mm-hmm. is, Everybody in every walk of life has a specialty that that they have spent more time working on or that they that, that is their is their specialty of interest that they spend more time from a personal level being interested in. And for me and, and for Kyle, it's it's Bob White, because that's where our our childhood was was Bob White hunting up through our formative years. That's what we we do on our daily job as far as as spending the most time but because of the nature of our jobs Kyle for 22 years and me at least for this current you know 16 years is we've had to be wildlife managers for the whole suite of species yes so we spend an and a bunch of time on whitetail deer management, a bunch of time on wild turkey management, a bunch of time on just natural community management, whether it's savannas or native prairie or whatever it is, we bring more than we always going to have our biases and our, and our focuses because that's just the nature of people. But we bring, man, I, I, I spend a lot of time working on whitetail management because a lot of people 
you know, the vast majority of people want that. They want to, you know, have mm -hmm. robust and healthy deer populations. They want to see bigger bucks. So I do spend a lot of time on that. Wild turkey is the same way. So I think the four of us bring that breadth of, of the whole suite of species plus the whole suite of community types and how to get to where we want to be um, in, in a, and we all bring a, a different perspective to that, yep. which I think works together really, really, really well. Um, at least from what I have seen from what we've produced and, and the feedback that we get, it, it works really well. Absolutely. No, I, I think that's, what's, what's absolutely fun about it. it and, um, you know, I will, I will say, I'll say this, I think originally when, when chatting with, with you and Kyle, he's like, Oh man, they, these guys know quail. Let's, let's offer some quail stuff. But we quickly realized that these guys know way more about wild turkey and deer than we originally gave them credit for. And I think what, what is at the backbone of all those species that's most important to you know anybody listening is knowing how to manipulate the landscape to get the result that you want. That's right. Once you know how to be able to do that, once you know the steps to take and the steps not to take, and you can create a desired result by working with the landscape, it doesn't it doesn't matter what your passion is, whether whether you've worked with quail or whether you prefer to hunt quail upland birds. That doesn't matter because guess what? And this is going to become a shock to a lot of people. I'd rather, I would rather turkey hunt and manage wild turkeys as a consultation focus than whitetail deer. But I'm still very passionate about deer hunting and I do it, but mm -hmm. I, I, I know how to manipulate the landscape for a wild turkey to utilize it 365 as well as a deer and and you you can manipulate one for quail and deer and turkey it it doesn't yeah. it doesn't matter because you uh, at the base of it, the foundation there is we look at properties critically and know what they need to know what needs to exist on the landscape for the you know the full year's time frame and then say okay here's here's the bounds in which i can work in Right here are the natural resources. Now I'm going to execute a plan to change this property for these species, but I'm going to do it utilizing these resources available to me, right in front of me. Yeah, that's right. It's just just this right. giant puzzle, and I yep. love it. So much fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It really is. Uh, it 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 really is. I, I know for me, and I, I know spending enough as much time as I have with you and Adam and Kyle for sure. It's 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 a passion that that we think about, you know, all the time. I mean, <laughs> we have other interests, yeah. but I mean, it's something that that drives us, and um, and it's more than just an an, an occupation or a vocation. Right. It's something that we that we really live, and and um, it's man, it's it's so much fun once you're especially to see the results of, of, um, man, I love to go back and look at the results of a prescribed fire and mm. see what mm. new species are popping up. And that, that is that really, and then, then to flush a brood of turkeys out of that is just, man, just icing on the cake. Um, yeah. you know, it really gives you a sense of accomplishment, whether you harvested gobbler there one year or not, you know, you know, you've set the table, you've, you've made things, and you're seeing some results. It's really cool stuff. That's right. That's absolutely right. Well, Frank, I, I really appreciate your time and, and uh, your, you sharing your mind and your knowledge about evaluating summer time frame heat, the, the, the stressors that the environment can throw at different game species. Um, that was fun. I think that was, that was good yeah. for people to be able to say, Oh, wow. I, I should be, I should be worried about that. I should look for that on the landscape. Yeah. I should know where they're, betting on yeah <laughs> they're yeah. in the summer too yes yeah. absolutely you should so yeah it's uh man it it, it really is important because um, it is you know it 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 is a it is a, a stress and we see it in, in in our own lives if we're stressed out for whatever reason we don't perform nearly as well we things just 
things just aren't aren't great from a from right. a, you know the a, a life perspective and you know wild animals may not feel stress and like we do you know like our bills to pay or whatever our kids are you know acting naughty or whatever but they certainly feel stress from other ways and they don't perform as well either so yep. we really need to be this is a great this is a great podcast subject to get folks really thinking in that way and starting to lay the groundwork and getting out and evaluating your areas of stress right now from a temperature perspective, from, from a fly perspective, an insect perspective, a parasite perspective, whatever it is. And, and how can you address that? Totally hit the nail on the head, my friend. Well, guys, I, I appreciate everyone listening. Um, you guys are going to be hearing a lot more from Frank and Kyle. They're going to be getting out on the road um, and, and traveling, hopefully, to your place or in your neighborhood. So be listening for, for more information coming from these guys. Um, they're fantastic. So we uh, certainly appreciate, again, Frank, your time. And, you bet. Um, Anytime. We'll, uh, we'll have you on here again soon. All right. Take care, Matt.